Hi, welcome to this Physicians Weekly's podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles. I'm your host for this podcast. And today we've got some great interviews as usual. This is Physicians Weekly. Welcome to this week's episode of Physicians Weekly's podcast. This week we have two guests, starting with Vignesh Arasu, MD-PhD, who's a research scientist at the Kaiser Permanente Northern California Division of Research as a practicing radiologist subspecializing in breast imaging. Physicians Weekly senior editor Dr. Marta Kelly speaks with Dr. Arasu about his research at the intersection of medical imaging, breast cancer, and artificial intelligence, AI. He oversees two randomized trials investigating the use of AI for breast cancer screening. Our second interview is a little longer than normal, and it takes a deep dive into the etiology of endometriosis. Endometriosis has been a topic in the media lately, largely due to the recently released documentary Below the Belt, co-produced as a bipartisan example of brilliance by ex-senators Hillary Rodden Clinton and Orrin Hatch, both known advocates for endometriosis quality of care. Today, we speak with retired OBGYN, Dr. David Redwine, who spent a career investigating the origin of endometriosis on how this complex condition arises and what we can do to treat it. Enjoy listening. Hello, I'm Marta Kelly, and I'm here with Dr. Vignash Arasu. He's a research scientist at Kaiser Permanente Northern California Division of Research. And today he's going to talk about mammography AI and how that can aid uh, standard mammogram and diagnostics in finding breast cancer in high-risk women. Welcome, Dr. Arasu. Great. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. What makes comparison of mammography AI algorithms with the clinical risk model uh, for five-year breast cancer risk prediction an important topic to study? What needs existed? Yeah, so um, breast cancer, unfortunately, is the second leading cause of cancer-related death in women in the U.S. And for decades, we don't really know who's at risk for breast cancer. Maybe 15% or maybe a third of women may have an identifiable risk factor. And these can include things like family history or prior estrogen exposure history or even you know prior breast cancer history. And we've known for decades that we can find risk information in the image of the mammogram, so in breast density, and and women all get letters about their breast density informing them of their risk. And recently, with the advent of artificial intelligence, we've now been able to move from finding a single risk factor in the image, the breast density, to now hundreds or even thousands of risk factors. And so what this study sought to evaluate was looking at a survey of multiple algorithms, just how well AI was able to help improve upon risk factor identification for future risk of breast cancer above and beyond our traditional risk factors. Can you briefly explain what you and your colleagues set out to determine with the study and how you went about doing so? Yeah, so this was a study performed at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, uh, which is a large integrated healthcare organization in California. And we screen, I mean, about a million women are eligible for screening mammogram in our facilities. We screen about half a million a year. And so we sought to look at, so this is a very large population that we're, you know, we have able to really look at these kind of questions on a population basis. So it's a community-based healthcare organization. So very representative of the underlying geography of Northern California's population, which is, you know, fairly diverse. 
And so we looked among women who are receiving screening mammograms. We started looking at women in 2016 so we could have full follow-up. So this was a retrospective study. And among those women who had no suspicious findings on their mammogram, so a negative mammogram, at least to the human eye, that was about a cohort of uh, 324,000 women. We took a subset of their mammograms. We took all the women who, who went on to develop cancer. That was about 4,500 women. And then we also took a sub-cohort of women to represent the overall population. That was about another 13,000 women. Uh, and so 18,000 women total nest within this total population and followed their outcomes. And so we looked at, uh, we took their mammograms, we processed them through all these different AI algorithms that, again, just take the uh, image alone and just by itself use that to predict their future risk of breast cancer. And then we compared it to a clinical risk model that uses some of these factors like age and family history and, and even the, the classic feature of breast density that's measured on a mammogram. So we compared these AI algorithms using the image alone compared to the uh, a model known as the BCSE, Breast Cancer Surveillance Consortium. Uh, and then we followed their outcomes um, out to five years and, and, and looked at how well they predicted um, future risk of breast cancer. Mm, okay. What findings from your study are important to stress to our physician readers? particularly oncologists and OBGYNs? So I think our study, along with other studies that have come out recently, are, are really showing that artificial intelligence alone, using just the mammogram, is, allows us to see additional risk factors above and beyond what we've known for decades. And this is really exciting because there's really not been much change in the number of uh, women that we can identify with breast cancer. So to, to give you a sense of things, so as I said, we may identify risk factors in maybe 15 to 30% of women using traditional means. But now when we add in artificial intelligence, we can now identify women who go on to have breast cancer risk factors in about 75% of them. So really quite a significant leap. And so really, I think the important finding of this is really, you know, this, this evidence that now is accumulating to really, I think, set the new standard for how risk factor identification will occur for women undergoing breast cancer screening. How would you like to see physicians incorporate this in your findings into their practice? So I think there's still quite a bit of work before we're at the phase of implementation. And this is something we're actively doing at Kaiser Permanente. First, we really need to make sure that AI really holds up in different populations. So we found in our population it holds up, in several other populations it holds up. But to the degree to which it improves prediction um, is there, but it may be different in different populations. And it's important also to understand how certain subgroups may differ. So we don't quite yet know if there's any underlying biases, for example, by race, ethnic lines, by age. And so we really want to make sure because AI is essentially still a black box, we don't really know what it's seeing that allows us to know these additional risk factors other than it is predictive, it is accurate. Um, and, and so all these aspects, um, I think, are still required before we can quote unquote, turn on AI, you know, uh, at scale and in a whole health system. But I think we're closer than ever before. And, and I foresee that soon more and more women will be able to get their own individual risk and, and more accurate risk. So right now, women aren't really provided their risk information on a systematic basis. Some health systems do, some don't. Or it's a very kind of very vague general uh, indication, like they get a letter that they have increased risk, but really not anything that's quantitative or something that's maybe even actionable. And so I think what this allows us to do is take the, the, the data element that is common among all these women who are eligible for screening, which is an actual medical image, a mammogram, and now provide a systematic kind of consistent risk evaluation. And so now that we will hopefully see more and more, 
kind of towards this future of precision medicine, of really being able to use an individual risk score to actually guide care. That's very interesting. Uh, what would you like to see in the future, future research in this area? What needs still exist? So I think um, what the field really needs is, as I mentioned, really evaluating AI across multiple populations and really to ensure there's not any underlying biases or understanding why there's variability um, because of the black box nature. But I think the other important aspect is how we combine this with additional known risk factors and how we can kind of put together everything into kind of the next generation of breast cancer risk assessment. That's an area of active focus in my research group and in many others. And, and so hopefully that we can start converging to a place where we can provide women, um, uh, again, a more accurate and more consistent uh, and with the ultimate goal of being able to identify women early um, in order to avoid breast cancer related morbidity and mortality. Well, this has been very, very interesting. Um, I want to thank you for participating in the interview. Great. Thank you again for your time and interest. In our next interview, we're going to switch to the topic of endometriosis with Dr. Redwine. to start off just by thanking you so much for your time here today. And, and could you just start off by telling me who you are and what your interests are? Uh, my name is David Redwine. I'm a retired obstetrician gynecologist. I worked in Bend, Oregon for 35 years. My first wife had endometriosis and the disease that I saw in her was nothing like the disease that was described in the textbooks. And so it, it was such a a, a major separation between fact and uh, fiction that I wanted to find out more about the disease in my own patients, in my own way. So I began to study the disease in a variety of ways that had not been studied before. That led to several landmark publications. And even though I have never had an academic appointment, uh, I've also never had an association with a pharmaceutical company or a medical equipment company. So I was in solo practice uh, by myself, 140 miles away from the nearest interstate highway. So I was off the beaten path. I was able to think about the disease the way I wanted to think about the disease and consider it and study it the way I wanted to study the disease, not repeat what seems so wrong from the textbook. So I sat down and collected basic information about where is it in the pelvis? What does it look like? How does it change in appearance over time? And when I was through, I realized that our entire understanding of the disease had been wrong because the uh, literature was focusing on patients who had more severe disease, uh, endometrioma cysts and things like this. But before every severe manifestation of a disease occurs, there is a milder manifestation. It's not that one day you go from normal to severe, you go from you know normal to mild to moderate severe, however you want to measure it. And so by biopsying anything that looked abnormal, I realized that there was this entire spectrum of uh, early stage disease that preceded the classic description in the textbooks. And the problem was, was that the 
manifestations of early stage disease, you know, in teenagers and patients in their 20s, that was much more common than the classic textbook description. And so there was this massive selection bias uh, based on let's look for really severe disease and this other stuff doesn't matter. Well, the other stuff matters because, you know, it's what leads to severe disease in some cases. Not every case of endometriosis goes from mild to moderate to severe. Every case of endometriosis can hurt, though. Pain is the most common and most specific symptom of the disease. Pain is fairly geographically precise. The most common area of endometriosis to be found is in the bottom of the pelvis at the end of the vagina next to the rectum. And so painful intercourse, painful bowel movements uh, with the menstrual flow are very common in patients with endometriosis just in terms of symptoms. But any pain in, in a patient, whether she describes it as abdominal pain, pelvic pain, backache, uh, any pain that is keeping a patient from school or work or enjoyment of life, you know, needs to be respected and investigated. Uh, all too often, patients are, you know, put on months or years of birth control pills or other hormonal management regimes. And yet, we know that those don't really change anything and they don't treat symptoms very well. Uh, in a lot of patients. Yeah, so what are the origins of endometriosis? Well, there's really only one origin. There are two or maybe three theories of origin, and the oldest thoughts on the origin of endometriosis from the 1800s was that it was something that you were born with, therefore embryonic. Familial tendency was kind of, you know, suspected. The oldest theory was embryonic. Then, uh, in about the 1922, 23, it's been 100 years, a man came along who proposed that there was what's called reflux menstruation, where bits of endometrium, instead of going out through the cervix and into the vagina, some of those bits of endometrium, those particles of tissue and, and cells that are sloughed off from the uterine lining go in reverse out the fallopian tubes where this blood, the accompanying cells, drip, drip, drip into the abdominal cavity, bathing the surfaces like seeds upon fertile soil where these cells and tissue fragments, you know, come to lie upon the peritoneal surface or this surface or that surface where they attach and then they begin to proliferate and invade. And then you have the disease called endometriosis, which may uh, proliferate and invade further beyond that. The problem with that theory is that uh, there is no proof for it, despite a hundred years. The cells that are involved are not small. You're uh, aware that a erythrocyte is about eight microns uh, in, in diameter. A stromal cell, one of the cells that you know, composes the uterine lining, is 30 to 40 microns in dimension. A glandular cell, kind of a tall cell, it's 75 to 80 microns, and these are just kind of rough estimates. So the cells that are involved in reflux menstruation are not small. They're bigger than red blood cells. You know what the diameter of a human hair is? A hundred microns, I'm guessing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So the point is that 
the cells that are involved, the tissue fragments that are involved, forget light microscopy, we could almost see those with our naked eyes. Certainly, right. we would, if, yeah. you know, endometriosis affects 10% of female patients and some men. And if, you know, it's due to reflux menstruation and all the menstrual flows that have occurred over the years, you would think that with these large cells involved, our textbooks would be filled with photomicrographs showing, okay, here is an attached tissue fragment or cell. Here it is yeah. proliferating and invading the peritoneum. And here right. we have endometriosis. Well, we've got plenty of pictures of endometriosis. We have no pictures whatsoever of attachment or proliferation and invasion. That is why we know that reflux menstruation is not the origin of any form of endometriosis, but it is the most dangerous theory in the history of medicine by far, given the hundreds of millions of patients who have endometriosis and whose care has been guided by this crazy theory. We have a theory of origin that people believe in, almost like a religion, because it's faith-based, because there is no proof for reflux menstruation. We can reject it, and we can reject all of its sub-theories. So what are you left with? We're back to a genetic slash embryonic basis of the origin of endometriosis. And this is the only theory of origin that explains everything we know about the disease. People are still, you know, with one foot in the past with uh, reflux menstruation, but, you know, people are beginning to realize that, yes, well, the genetics of endometriosis is, is important. Endometriosis is extremely pleomorphic in its appearance. I mean, it can range from little tiny clear dots all the way up to you know large tumors of the ovary or of the bowel or anything in between and of course it can hurt a lot it can hurt a little it can involve this area and or that area although it follows patterns there's no question that endometriosis follows patterns not only in the pelvis uh, but also uh, in the rest of the body where it can affect other organs when you look at all these traits... So where do, you, where do you get the cells from, though? Are they stem cells that remain de-differentiated? And, and how does this work? Because what did the gene expression studies show, then? Well, the gene expression studies just show that there are multiple genes that are involved in patients who have endometriosis. When you take genetics, the genetics that is known and expanding over time, and intersect it with basic embryology, it becomes like this. You've got the individual has its inherited genetics, and those genetics are going, you know, at the moment of conception, they're set at where the endometriosis is going to be biologically active, malignant potential it might have. It's typically low, but uh, that's a side feature of endometriosis. You know, and, and, and any other characteristic of the disease that we can identify in the child or the adult, well, that's all set at the moment of conception. So what happens is, as the mesoderm is kind of migrating around, you know, to form the pelvic organs, you know, recall from embryology, the uh, pelvic organs formed by cells that are, seem to be sliding down the posterior side of the uh, embryo, and then they kind of, 
rise up, you know, to form the uterus tubes and ovaries. Well, depending on genetics, the differentiation and migration of those cells is going to be altered in patients who are going to develop endometriosis. And how much alteration is going to depend on the built-in genetics. When you keep in mind, too, that uh, endometriosis is also associated pathologically and genetically with adenomyosis and with fibroids, you know, you, you see that, well, this is kind of a, a bigger genetic problem than just endometriosis alone. Oh, one other thing, you know, about the genetics, you know, DNA methylation occurs over time. And there's this thing called Horvath's DNA methylation clock. Methylation of DNA as people age kind of is supposed to occur at a, you know, some kind of constant rate, thus Horvath's clock. When they took tissue from endometrioma cysts and tissue from the lining of the uterus, you know, the endometrium, and if you believe in Samson's theory, that endometrium is what caused the endometrioma cyst. Well, they measured the methylation clock of the endometrium versus the endometrioma cyst, and they found that there was a 16-year difference in methylation, uh, and the range of error of the methylation clock is only plus or minus five. So this 16-year difference... But was it older or was it younger? I'm not clear on the 16-year difference. It was, it was younger. younger. Okay. It, was, it seemed younger. There was less methylation. Okay. It's just another manifestation that endometrium is different from endometriosis. Yes. Yeah. Sure. But they concluded that reflux menstruation would not have caused this because the tissue shouldn't be, you know, so different. It had to be developmental. So you've got lots of examples of, of developmental errors that turn into to some kind of benign growth. I think there are examples of this, and that would also explain it because perhaps only the cells start differentiating and forming the endometriosis at the time of puberty when the hormones are finally, you know, the receptors are activated and the signaling starts occurring, and they get the signals to grow. Is that what's considered the idea? Well, yes and no. Endometriosis develops, you know, in the embryo. And it develops in well-known patterns, both in the pelvis and around the body, are another indication that this isn't a random disease, you know, due to some kind of random blood splashing around. You know, now there have been cases of fetal endometriosis that have been reported. I did a study, autopsy material from the pelvis of infant females dying of sudden infant death syndrome. And I found out of, I think, eight or nine specimens, I found one example that looked like endometriosis of a three-month-old child that had died of crib death. And it made a big stir at the time because it was like, what? You know, no, that, that can't be. You know, but with other reports, you know, that are coming out, you know, Signa really found evidence of what looked like endometriosis in aborted fetuses in Italy, you know, and the rate that I found in, in my study was like 11%. He found like 12%, 11%. The estimate of prevalence of endometriosis in the population is around 10%. So, you know, even though uh, eight or nine patients isn't a lot, it's still in the ballpark of the prevalence estimate, and then Cinderella's results, you know, were, were kind of spot on also. So. 
other primates develop endometriosis as well. And all those primates that develop endometriosis split from the human clade up to 30 million years ago. And so uh, what that means is that I call it the genetic ensemble. The genetic ensemble has been around for probably hundreds of millions of years. Uh, we know that Hox genes are identifiably involved in endometriosis. And so Hox genes came out 500 million years ago. What that means is the genetic basis of endometriosis is hundreds of millions of years old. We don't understand it all, of course, but it's it's been around a long time. Hippocrates was the first to describe endometriosis. He described what would be considered a case of severe endometriosis with nodularity and pain and infertility. Could you give me some take-home messages perhaps for our listeners? The best treatment for these tracts of tissue that are laid down is simply to remove them by excision. Excision is the only treatment that has been shown to cure endometriosis. And by cure, I mean, if you go in again at surgery, you don't find it. The cure rate with excision is over 50%. And there's a reduction of endometriosis uh, in patients who are not cured. Medical therapy does not do anything to endometriosis. Medical therapy tries to treat symptoms only. Uh, it does so in a, a very, poor way. Luprolide can cause long-term permanent ovarian dysfunction in 61% of patients who take it. We're several decades from being able to treat the cause of endometriosis, but if the result of these genetic uh, reasons is endometriosis, we can treat this by removing the endometriosis because those tracts of tissue they have two types of cells in them, endometriosis, little small islands of endometriosis, and surrounding stem cells with a muted capacity to form maybe a little bit more endometriosis. The next step is simple and it's free, and it would have an instant effect, and that is to completely reject the theory of reflex menstruation as the origin of any form of endometriosis. If that were done, Let's study genetics. Let's look at you know genomics of the tissue and proteomics of the tissue, and let's go in the right direction for a change instead of something that's supported by cartoons. So that would be the single most effective immediate change that would have dramatic results. Then I'm going to stop you here, and thank you so much for your time and, and insights into a very complex and unusual yeah, story. I, I liked I liked a lot of what you said. Thank you for your time. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 